welcome to the worst bestsellers where we read a book by kate's nemesis so you don't have to i'm renata and i'm kate and for this episode we read hollow earth by john and carol barrowman Joining us to discuss this artsy middle-grade fantasy is Naomi, practicing misandrous and former searcher for secret doorways to other lands. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, Long-time Worst Bestsellers listeners may remember Naomi from... What was that book called? I don't remember. <laughs> I was just trying to think of it. <laughs> you know, the one about the pumpkin spice cult. Under the radar. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, she's back. <laughs> and Naomi got drafted to do this because I put out a call on Twitter if there was anyone who hated John Barrowman as much as I did. And on chat, she was like, well, if you can't find anyone else, I guess I could do it. And we couldn't find anyone else. <laughs> he is a beloved figure of science fiction and fantasy, Kate. Uh, literally everyone except for me. <laughs> well, actually, I'll let you explain to everyone why he's your nemesis, and I'll chime in with my own two cents about John Barrowman, and then we can talk about whatever this book was. I think, like, I, I was trying to think back, because after we recorded the last episode, I was like, okay, well, if Renata explains why Rob Lowe is her nemesis, I'm going to have to explain why Barrowman is mine. And it, it's hard. It's not as concrete a story as Renata's. I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and I really enjoyed the character that he plays on Doctor Who, Captain Jack Harkness, when he was on in the first season of the 2005 revival. Um, I thought he was a great character. I, you know, loved seeing his interactions with my other two favorite characters in that series. Like, I thought that he and Rose and the Doctor were so great together. So then when his spinoff started, Torchwood, I was like, oh, like, I love Jack on Doctor Who. This show will be great. Uh, spoiler alert, Torchwood is garbage. Largely because Barrowman cannot handle a show on his own he is very good in support he is not a leading man he is a terrible actor um (laughs) everything is very over the top and ridiculous and i think it was really just a mixture of how much everyone worshipped him um how smarmy i tend to find him in all of his like interviews and shit and how I really feel like he is frequently held up as like this pinnacle of queer representation when he actually only represents a very limited white gay male perspective from like 20 years ago, you know, when everything was camp and, you know, great and over the top and and like, it's not, I mean, yes, obviously there are still, you know, people who feel like that lifestyle fits them. But for so long, that was really the only view that we had of homosexuality or any type of queer sexuality in media that it feels like really disingenuous now in like 2006 when he started on Torchwood to have like this be and to have it be held up as the be all end all of queer representation by, you know, everyone else in the world. And the more, it became one of those things where, like, the more everyone else talked about how great he was and how he was perfect and everything he did was wonderful and everything 
the character that I liked on Torchwood did was garbage because she was a harpy slut who was just trying to sleep with Barrowman's character. Um, I just, the spite came in and I hated him more and more. And then my friends started to torture me with this one picture of him. It, it kind of spiraled <laughs> out of control. And, and we're going to tweet the picture. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Becca was like the only other person that I knew, my, my roommate and our editor, who did not like him. Like, I was at a panel at a convention once where somebody said, like, raise your hand if you don't like Jack Harkness. And I was literally the only person who did. And at another panel, I complained about, uh, not complained about, I was constructively critical of Barrowman at this, <laughs> you know, academic panel. And I was literally booed out of the room. Ah! I am sorry. <laughs> you walk a lonely road, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's how that all kind of started. <laughs> and then it just escalated. Um, I would also point out the crucial part of him being a terrible actor is his appearance in uh, terrible sci-fi movies. Was it Shark oh Attack my God. Shark Attack 3! Yes! That movie That's sounds a big dope part and of I the Nemesis it. story. It's, it's a movie that exists. Oh my god. And that's about all I can say for it. it and it was my cue. Oh my god, it's it's amazing. I'll to send you me and Becca's review of it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I knew, like, I knew that Kate considered John Barrowman her nemesis, but... I don't watch Doctor Who, so for a long time I kind of, like, barely knew who he was. I just only associated him with Kate. And then at some point, I think it was, I think actually my friend Stacy, friend of the show Stacy, who has been on with something, whatever, uh, she sent me a link to him performing uh, I Know Him So Well from Chess, and we were obsessed with it. And so that was, I, for a while, really only knew John Barrowman from... A, being Kate's nemesis, and B, from his cover of a song from an 80s musical about chess that I loved. And then he turned up on Arrow, a show that I'm watching. I don't know why I'm still watching it. No, I do. I'm watching it <laughs> for the character Felicity Smoke and everyone else on it, including John Behrman, is garbage, pretty much. Oh, also Dig. There's two characters who are not garbage, basically. And anyway, so... at I think it was another friend of the show, Nicole, who was like, uh, John Barrowman's the worst part of Arrow. And I was like, I don't even know that he is because I there's so many equally worst parts of the show. Like, I would almost <laughs> argue that the main character is the worst part of Arrow. <laughs> like, I think I maybe hate Oliver Queen more than I hate Malcolm Merlin, which is John Barrowman's character. But he's definitely bad he is bad on arrow so now i'm finally like years later like oh i get it <laughs> yeah i was also someone who thought he was great on doctor who was not a fan on torchwood i was not nearly as much in torchwood fandom as kate but just watching the show i was not a fan of what he was doing and i share some of kate's reservations i would not call him my nemesis my dislike isn't that strong <laughs> and I was definitely part of the people who thought it was hilarious to start torturing Kate by linking her to this one particular picture and to just oh my... turn it into a massive inside joke. 
So we basically, a- I'm a terrible person, and that shouldn't surprise anyone. <laughs> were you at the party where everybody filled the bowl with Barrowman with a hose? Absolutely, I, I was. I, I used to have these parties where, like, people would come over and everyone would write down, like, an episode of a TV show they wanted to watch, and we'd put them in a bowl and pull them out and watch shows for, like, hours that way while drinking and heckling. And at one particular party, everyone just filled the bowl while I was out getting the pizza with Barrowman with a hose. <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. So we're all jerks. Yes. I wasn't there, but I applaud that. <laughs> Our dedication to jerkitude is pretty strong. Anyway, so that's John Barrowman and his his rivalry with Kate. And so uh, this book was co-written by John and Carol Barrowman, who is, I guess, John's sister and also a professor of English. And so I'm going to go ahead and guess, like, the authorship split here was, like, 90 Carol, 10 John... And the 10 was maybe him being like, oh, what if, like, they're artists or something? And her being like, cool, I'll put that in. But <laughs> technically, his name's on the, technically his name is first on the cover, so we're, you know, we're counting it, counting it. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with him and his brand, like, he and his sister do a lot of writing and appearances and things together. Um, like, his memoirs are all co-written with her as well. I found out also they co-wrote an Arrow comic series that's like a prequel about his shitty character, Malcolm Merlin. And I read the description. I was like, oh, this all sounds like all the worst parts of the show just put into a comic that I don't want to read. Thanks. Yeah, I think they also co-wrote some Torchwood comics or a Torchwood novel. But whatever, like that's that's their whole shtick is that they write things together and probably she writes things and he sits there and, you know, eats cake and it's like, and, you know, what if like there's a monster and it's like an antler, it's a stag, but it has wings and it's giant and yeah. Maybe he's like Rob Lowe and he also can't read. You know, that's a great rumor to put out there. (laughs) I would not, I would not be surprised. (laughs) So anyway, this is, this is, uh, I was actually, as much as I hate to say this, given all of the history that I just gave you of my time with Barrowman, <laughs> I was not, I mean, I wasn't impressed with this book, but it, it was fine, which I know is a thing we say a lot, but it was a very generic fantasy series, first book of a fantasy series with a very generic plot and very generic characters, but not, I did like, think this the- was no... I did think the trappings of it were cool. Like, the way it was executed was pretty generic. But there were some, like, weird, cool things to it. Yeah. I like the the general idea of it, but I would have taken that concept and gone in a very different direction. Mm-hmm. And when we get to Reader's Advisory, I'll tell you about a book that did it much better than this. But still, <laughs> it's it's pretty solid. Although, like, my experience of reading it, I read it pretty quickly. I was like, yeah, this is fine. This is fine. And then I went to write a plot summary of it, and I had to almost reread the book. So I was like, wait, what? No, who is this? What? Like, it all immediately left my brain, and then I could not put it back together in any order that, like, made sense. And I'm still not totally sure what happened. So I guess let's talk about that. All right. Well, I can take the lead then. Great. 
<laughs> so the book opens with our main characters, M and Matt, who are twins. By the way, that's that's E M, like short for Emily or something. Probably not like the letter M. Yes, they actually call her Emily a couple times. So it's M and Matt, and they're twins, and they are sitting in what museum? Some famous museum in London, while their mother attends to work because she works there. I think it's the National there. Gallery. Yes, I think you're correct. And while they're sitting there, they're upset because it's really hot outside and she promised them they could go swimming and she needs them to stay where they are so she can go attend to some work stuff. And while she runs off, they are complaining about how they wish they were swimming. So they pull out a piece of paper and they start drawing. And then the next thing you know, they're swimming in a painting. And I have two things I'd like to interject here. Um, The first is that the kids are 12, but a recurring problem in the book is that the kids alternately act like they're, sometimes they act like they're about 8, and they usually talk like they're about 30. They're not realistically 12 in any sense. And second of all, this is a little uh, regional nitpick that I'm going to throw in there, because they make a big deal about how the painting that they have jumped into to swim with and they give like a little mini history lesson about this painting and it's Sunday on the island of La Grande Jatte by Georges Seurat and that painting is in the Art Institute of Chicago and it never travels and people in Chicago are like very proud that it's there and he can't just put it in London because he wanted there John Barrowman <laughs> doesn't go there and like they gave this little mini history about like pontalism and the style of it and it's like you could have you could have just used a different painting but you didn't you put them in this painting. So Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte is the painting that features heavily in Sunday in the Park with George, which is Stephen Sondheim's musical about George Seurat. So maybe that's why they put it in. Maybe they were just like, you know what, we'll just throw in a little bone for all these middle grade Sondheim lovers. Well, Barrowman's like a big musical theater person, so... I know, I'm like legitimately saying maybe that's why. Oh, okay. (laughs) Sorry, yeah, yeah. If you'll okay, recall, probably... the only reason I knew who he was besides you right, was right. his chess appearance. <laughs> so don't musical theater explain me, Kate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for treating you like a fake theater nerd girl. Uh, Despite, you know, having sat on the sidewalk to see Rent with you. Actually, I don't think I ever sat on the sidewalk to see Rent with you. I think we just played Lottos together. Yeah, but we won. We did. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so they they are suddenly in this painting, and then all of a sudden their mom is screaming at them, and they're back in the gallery, and there's water all over the floor, and they're wet, and, like, their mother clearly knows that something's going on, um, but, you know, everyone else at the museum is just kind of like, oh, like, something, they must have had a water fight. Uh, so she pulls them out of the museum like she's really angry with them like they have to go now and leave the country immediately and she doesn't explain anything to the kids and Matt in particular is very bitter like he hates his mother and their father had disappeared many years ago under mysterious circumstances and their mother just said like oh well he he left us and Matt doesn't believe that. He thinks that she drove their father away. (laughs) No evidence. She drove him here. Um, Also, this is one of the things that caused me confusion. Because 
And it, I reread it like three times and I figured it out. But she's like, you know you're not supposed to draw in public. Like, you know the rules. And they're like, we're sorry. And and then she's like, but wait, but did you guys actually go in the painting? And they're like, yeah. And it's so it's like, wait, why did they have that rule if you didn't know they could go into paintings? And then I finally figured out that for a few years, they've been able to draw things to life. And she knew they could do that. And they had a rule against that. But she didn't know that they could go into paintings, which is what they did. They actually like went into Sunday in the park. No, they went into the painting um, instead of like drawing their own water. And that was a big deal. But it's put out there so confusingly that you it's it's confusing in short um so they she keeps making these references to like these drawing powers that they have without really explaining them and they go back to their apartment and she's trying to get them to pack so they can leave but matt in particular is like no like i'm not going anywhere until you tell us and um the the story is told from a third person omniscient point of view so it kind of i I don't want to say it skips from point of view to point of view because we're never inside anyone's head we just kind of get stuff about them like it wasn't as disorienting for me as some other books that we've read are where like in one paragraph you're you know in the thoughts of this character and then in the next paragraph you're from the other character's point of view yeah it's more just like random observations seem to be more closely aligned with any one character's point of view but it's never like fully their point of view uh, so we learned from the narration that she's tested this before and she knows that she can get them and their things together and out of the house in 10 minutes. And right now they're down to seven minutes and they need to leave as soon as possible before these people come, come to get them. And she's very unclear as to what they're going to do until Matt is very obstinate and she says, they're going to hurt you. They're going to do something to you if they get you. So they make their brilliant escape by the kids draw some more stuff that kind of helps them get out at the last minute and their mother tells them that they're going to Scotland where their grandfather lives and they're shocked that they even have a grandfather. (laughs) So the twins also have telepathy and they've been talking to each other telepathically throughout this but it seems like the mom doesn't know they can do that. It's just sort of a fun surprise they have. Um, So while they're en route to their grandfather's place in Scotland, we go back to the National Gallery and we see the person who their mother had been meeting with, who is very panicked and afraid for her and for the kids, and makes a bunch of secretive phone calls from, like, the depths of the National Gallery in his office, which is, like, behind all of these, like, fingerprint scan, high-tech doors... And it's like something... very national treasure. Yes. There's something loose in in the workspace that he's in and he locks himself in the office and he can hear it going around and this cursed painting is there, but he didn't order that painting for restoration or whatever the hell it is he does. And he's very concerned as he makes these phone calls to various different sides that we don't know anything about yet. Yeah, words like council are being thrown around, like a lot of capital letter nouns being thrown around, but we don't really know what they are. Um, Also, he's like, I would never would have requested that painting. Like, obviously, I didn't want that painting. And we're like, okay. 
And then it cuts away from him for a while, I think, before we figure out about that. Yeah, and then when it does cut back, he makes, like, a final phone call, and they say, don't open the door to your office. And then the door to his office melts, and the creature from the painting is there, and it attacks him, and he dies. And And it ends with, like, the changeling creature chewing on his leg. So you guess he gets eaten to death. Yeah, it sounds cool. Yeah. So then we're back on the way to Scotland, and Matt is being a pissy baby about everything. Like, there's these beautiful views and this, you know, wonderful island that's gorgeous. And he's just like, this is garbage. This is ugly. I hate it. I hate it already. I can tell. And, like, just basically being an asshole. I guess no, the more we talk about it, the more... Maybe Matt is actually realistically 12, but M is not. Yeah. Um. Oh, and the worst fucking thing that Matt does in the whole book, I think, the worst thing that he does <laughs> is... Well, they have to take a ferry to get to where their grandfather lives. And bef- on their way to get to the ferry, he, like, crosses the street badly and almost gets hit by this truck and the truck's like watch where you're going and then on the ferry he sees jellyfish in the ocean and he's like those are cool and then he draws a giant jellyfish and manifests it on that guy's truck on the windshield that's horrible and look (laughs) even as someone who loves the creatures of the sea and plans to become a sea witch when she grows up that's just wrong you don't want a jellyfish the size of a beach ball, and you don't want it on a car windshield. No, that's and, awful. And also, the jellyfish probably gonna die. Yes, or maybe it was never alive. A few man, I. It's not real clear how that whole thing works. But don't do that. If you've got magic powers, don't use them to put jellyfish on people's stuff. Nobody wants <laughs> that. Uh, so after the ferry ride with the horrible jellyfish. Uh, They find out that their grandfather owns a huge portion of land on this island off the coast of Scotland that used to be in... Doesn't he own the whole island? The little island? He owns the the little island. And then a lot of the big island. Part of the big island, yeah. Um, So there's, there's a large island with a town and a seaside and all this stuff. And then on the other end is this old monastery. And then across... Like, the the channel from the big island is a smaller island that was once, like, a part of the monastery, and there's a tower and some other buildings over there, but otherwise it's empty. And their grandfather owns that and a big portion of the other island, and he very quickly explains once they arrive that... He knows that they can make things happen with their drawings because lots of people can, including their mother. And there's a whole secret magical society that no one's ever heard of before because it's secret of people who can make things come to life from their art and their guardians. That's capital G guardians who help them along the way and protect them and make sure that they don't like go out of control. Yes. And uh, if you can make your drawings come to life... You're called an Animare, capital A, um, which I, it's Latin, but I kept reading it as Animare, like an anamorph <laughs> of a horse, and I could not, not think of it that way. So you're you're that, capital A, or you're a capital D guardian, and you're a pair, like if you're an Animare, then you've got a guardian to watch out for you. 
Um, but the twins have the abilities of both Animarius and Guardians, and it's very strange. Um, so there, it turns out that there are rules for this whole secret society of uh, Animare and Guardians. And, like, the first rule is that you're not supposed to draw in public where your drawings might come to life and, you know, people who are not initiated into the society can see them. And there's a bunch of other rules, but rule number four is that Animares and Guardians should not have children together. They're not allowed to have children together. Um, they can't procreate. They can fall in love and they can have relationships, but they can't have kids because a child with both power sets, because the powers are genetic, would be bad. Like that level of power would be uncontrollable. And if it was, you know, got into the wrong hands, it could end the world or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and it is weird. It is weird that they have this because the way that a relationship between an Animarian guardian is described, I feel like if you were if you were just like a rando normal and you were married to an Animari and then they also had a guardian, like they can like read each other's emotions and like all this shit. Like I think it would be weird to be married to like into that without having those powers. Yeah, and um, the twins are the result of such a union. Their father was a guardian, their mother is an animare, and they're, as far as we know, or anyone in the book knows, the only such people that have ever existed in the time that the society has existed. Which, the society has existed since 1848. Yes. <laughs> but animare have existed for... Far, yeah. far longer. Yeah, yeah. since Which, wavy hand medieval times. Ye oldie times. Yes. <laughs> but because it's it's uh, kind of implied that because they have both sets of powers, because their father was a guardian and their mother was an animare, that's why their powers are developing so quickly and why they're so strong and also why they have this telepathic link between them. Because um, that's, as Renata said, that's one of the things that happens every animare eventually has a guardian and the guardian and the animare are linked emotionally and psychically um, so they can communicate psychically and also can tell like when the other person is hurt or you know if something if they're feeling upset or something like that and one of their their powers is to calm them essentially to to um, level their emotions because if an animare gets very excited and upset and kind of like loses track of their thoughts, they can make their fears come to life without drawing them, I guess. Yeah. You just kind of psychically project things. The things seem to have mass and can interact with other objects. Yeah. They're kind of like Danny from X Men, her powers. And then the Guardians are kind of like Jasper from Twilight. Yes. <laughs> so it's cool. We never said this was a terribly original series. Right. When they're with their grandfather, we finally start to get a little more information about the Guardians and the Animaris and all of that. And then we meet the other people who live on the grandfather's estate, I guess I'll call it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And there's, first of all, I do, I want to give some props-ish to this book because there's another kid there and his name is Zach and he's deaf and he uses sign language which you don't necessarily see as much of that in children's fiction as you might like. So that was nice. 
And I thought it was nice, too, that not only, you know, was there a deaf kid who we see using sign language, but he was never, there was never, like, a message around him. Like, his deafness never saved the day. His deafness was never a lesson for the other characters. He was just another kid on the island who was their friend and who was a guardian in training and happened to be deaf. And they were friends with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did, and they, they learned sign language super quickly, I thought, but, yeah, in like you know, month. they also have magic painting powers, so I won't nitpick that too much. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's Zach, and then Zach's dad is Simon, who is also a guardian, because the powers are hereditary, and then Simon is the guardian of Mara, who's an Annie Mare, who is very shifty, but everyone's like, no, she's always lived here, she's not, she's just like that, she's not actually a traitor. Spoiler, she's a traitor. Yeah, and Simon and Mara and Matt and M's parents, uh, Sandy and Malcolm, were part of this like group of guardians in Animare that came to the Abbey to be trained at the same time. Then they all went to college together and they were all like super close and best friends. And like Mara used to have a thing for uh, Matt and M's dad, Malcolm, but like then he married Sandy, so whatever. But they're all still friends. They're totally, not friends. Totally friends. Totally not harboring a grudge at all. No, no I don't know why you would think that. Uh, and then there's Jeannie, who is the housekeeper, who's got a just... got a real Scottish accent. Yeah, there's so dialectically much dialect. written out. Yeah. And she's just basically exactly what you would think a stereotypical old lady housekeeper would be. Yeah, very concerned everybody's getting enough food. Very, you know, sassy, whatever. She gets very upset when they go to, she thinks that a whole bunch of people have gone to the new coffee house instead of drinking her coffee. She <laughs> takes it as a personal slight. Yep. And and then Reynard is the grandfather. And, and so that's all we, that they know about. Yeah. Um, So they are, while they're there and settling in for like the first month or so, we go back to London, where the council, which has been referred to a few times, uh, is meeting. And the council is a whole group of Animaris and guardians, uh, who are like the most powerful of those types in the area. And they are voting on whether or not M and Matt should be bound or if they should wait until they come of age, which in this magical society is 16, and then let them make a case for themselves and make a choice. And it's implied, we don't know exactly what binding them is right now. We know that it's bad. Mm -hmm. We know that they are really concerned about doing it to children because it's so terrible and you would never do that to a a child. We know it has something to do with their imaginative powers and their artistic abilities. Uh, But that's basically it. So the council votes on whether or not to bind these two 12-year-old children. And uh, they vote no, that they're going to wait until they're 16 and let them, you know, make a choice of their own. Mm -hmm. But it's close. Yes. Oh, and have we mentioned that Sir Charles is the head of the council? No. Sir Sir Charles is the head of the council. He's shadowy and (laughs) evil. Yeah, and he's really lobbying for them to be bound. Yes. And he has some other shifty thing going on, but no one's quite sure what it is. Uh, And the other shifty thing that's happening is that um, P. 
people keep referring to this group, the Hollow Earth Society, mostly to say that the Hollow Earth Society is a myth and doesn't exist, and it's just a story. Wait, no, that that Hollow Earth doesn't exist, but there is a society, but the people who are in the society are, like, nuts. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that's it. And Reynard explains what Hollow Earth is. Which is basic. (laughs) Basically, the idea is that there normally when an animare draws something, it only exists as long as their drawing or painting exists, or until they like kind of lose concentration or get far enough away from it. it, it they're not like forever type things. But the hollow earth theory is that some very powerful ones don't disappear. And that they go to this this place, this hollow earth place, and it keeps all of them. And it's the source of all monsters? Yes. Which I thought was Lady Gaga, but <laughs> it's not. It's the hollow earth. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a myth. It can't possibly exist. But what if it did, though? <laughs> it would be pretty fucked up. So... Uh, that's all going on, and then back at the Abbey, the kids are learning how to use their powers and being little shits, and... There's a whole fucking thing that I don't think we should really go into, but basically they run a con where they convince tourists that they have a really high-tech reenactment of, like, it's a holographic historical reenactment, but they're really just drawing it, and they do it, and they charge tourists five pounds to look at it. But then one of their Vikings stabs a kid and they have to stop it. (laughs) And they're very nonchalant about this. Like, this kid gets stabbed and the way it's described, it sounds pretty brutal. And then the the chapter ends and the next chapter is immediately they're hanging out eating ice cream. And Matt is like, whatever, he was a big baby. It was just a scratch. I mean, he was fine. (laughs) And they do have free health (laughs) care. He got stabbed by a Viking in a cave. That's pretty upsetting. Whatever. (laughs) The other thing that we start to learn during this time is that Zach, um, who is the kid who is Simon's son, who's deaf, who's a guardian, um, is starting to form a bond with M. um, And kind of the implication is that he's going to be her guardian eventually once he's trained up. So she... And Zach can now communicate telepathically as well, which is, you know, a nice shortcut yep. <laughs> for them as writers. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of, there's a problem in a lot of portrayals of disability where it like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, Daredevil is blind, but he can see things with his super senses, so it doesn't really count. And in some ways, this kind of skated close to this, but... There were also times when it was like, no, he is actually deaf, and it does mean yeah. he has an, ex- an experience yeah. of the world that's different. Also, so. they <sighs> also they text a lot, which is another thing that yeah. modern deaf people do a lot. Oh, yeah, oh my god, and Reynard invented the iWatch. I forgot about that. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't call it that, but he did. Uh, <laughs> and so they all have these high tech like get go go gadget watches that they use. <laughs> And Zach hacks them because he's a little hacker. It's pretty great. <laughs> uh, so 
I don't know, a whole bunch of shit is going on, and... Like, so many things. Most of them aren't really important. Oh, and the kids, they found, there's all these caves on the island, and they hang out in this one cave and basically make it their bat cave, and they, like, draw all this equipment to life and, like, a couch and stuff to put in their cave, which I think is honestly an awesome use of your art powers. Yes. Sure, Um, why not? It's awesome. But a whole bunch of stuff happens that's not super important. There's some sketchy people on the island who, um, because M is developing her guardian powers more quickly and Matt is developing his Animare powers more quickly, but it means that M's very sensitive to other people's emotions and she can't necessarily read thoughts, but she can kind of tell when people are lying and stuff like that. So there are these this couple that's around who are very sketchy and she thinks they're sketchy and they give her a bad feeling. Oh, and they Uh, were in London too. She remembers them being sketchy there. Yeah. By the way, Uh, I didn't think about this until now, but if M is developing her guardian powers more strongly, why does she get a guardian and not Matt? Like, I think it's just because the guardian powers are like more girly. So they're like, oh, we'll give in to M, but also a guardian. Like it doesn't super make sense. Maybe he I mean, would get his own guardian if there were another kid on the island. But if there's only one, like, shouldn't he I get a guardian? I assumed that it was because Zach is eventually going to be, obviously, hooked up with M. But why and couldn't Matt. he hook up with Matt? <laughs> Matt needs a guardian. Um, and Whatever. To, to have the kind of, like... I mean, I guess, I guess M and Matt are pretty interchangeable, and they could have gone either way Mm -hmm. but um so the thing about zach that kind of keeps him from veering too far into the like deaf or the disability superpower thing is that the only person he can communicate with is m he can't psychically communicate with anyone else Mm -hmm. um that's true and that's one of the things that makes it not quite as bad as it could have been yeah so there's a lot of like when they're they can't see him so they can't see his signing or whatever like Matt will say, like, M, tell Zach this. What did he say? Or the... the... Yeah. Yeah, so that's the whole thing. But, yeah, so a lot happens in this book. Not a, not a lot of it is important. I guess the plot really picks up when one day while everyone is out doing something, I can't remember exactly what, um, Simon and the kids are out. When they come back, there's something terrible. Oh, they've gone into town um, to go to the store to pick up art supplies. And when they get back... On their way back, Simon, like, starts convulsing, and he says it's because something terrible is happening tomorrow, and something terrible is happening at the house. So they rush back, and when they get there, Reynard is, like, beaten up, and he's unconscious and bleeding, and uh, Mara's been knocked unconscious. Sandy, their mother, is missing. The house has been destroyed. Someone was obviously looking for something, but no one knows what it is. Oh, um, but we know because the mom, I forgot, there's been all this foreshadowing about the mom, when they first left, she took this tube, like a tube that paintings would go in and uh, fucking whatever. There's a thing about it, but who cares? And there's also a satchel with mysterious contents. Yeah, Yeah, she, she gives the tube to their landlord, who also is an Animari or a guardian or something, and says, like, here, take this. And she's like, oh, my God, is this? And the mom's like, no, 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 it's not. But they're going to think it is if I give it to you. So, like, put up a good fight. And I'm going to have the real one safe. So that's the, the tube is there. And then the satchel has, like, other shit in it. 
and she brings that with her to, I don't know, whatever. Um, so then it becomes like kind of a, a quest to be like, who hurt? Where's our mother? Who stole her? Who hurt our grandfather? Who's a bad guy? And there's a stranger that they see around town who they think might be the bad guy. And after hunting him down, it turns out that he's not. He's a friend of their mother who they had met earlier in the book very briefly, who is sent to watch out for them because he knows that the council has it out for them and is sending people after them. And at one point they catch two people who are sneaking around the house and they tell Mara to call the police and she says, okay, yeah, I'm going to call the police and they'll take care of them and I'll, I'll lead the police out to where they are. And she doesn't because she's a traitor. Yes. <laughs> we don't know that yet. But it's kind of obvious. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, you know, and the, eventually... Eventually, the people, um, they attack... They attack Mara because even though she is a traitor, she's more loyal to Malcolm because she loved him. So... I forget all the details, but she doesn't want to do exactly what the bad people want to do, so they hurt her. So Simon flips out because, um... Well, no, that's we already covered that part. No, I thought this... Okay, whatever. Yeah, because they, they hurt her during the attack on Reynard. Oh, right. Okay, so Simon's helping them. So that... They create these mythical creatures to help them. Well, that's... That's your... Mm. Okay, fuck. So I'm... You do <laughs> Sorry. <it>. Sorry. <laughs> Part of the problem is that the pacing in this book is really weird. Like, something will happen, like the terrible, you know, intrusion into the house, and their grandfather being beaten, and their mother being kidnapped, and sometimes they'll act like, oh shit, we better find our mom, and sometimes it's just like, well, let's Let's eat ice cream. Drawing things. And... Also, every so often it cuts back to like old timey monks who are basically just like that recurring series on the toast of two monks inventing things. It's like basically that. And it's really, it's like the history of Animari. I think he's like the first Animari or something, but it's like so boring and it keeps happening. Like, I don't give a shit, but it's yeah. there. Well, it does so... tie in at the very end, but they don't really justify it. Oh. my mind but so all that stuff happens um they find this guy you know sneaking around vaughn. Uh, while reynard's in a coma and their mother's disappeared and they find out that it's vaughn who's a good guy and they go out the next morning they wake up late and no none of the grown-ups are there except genie and Jeannie says, like, oh, you know, Simon, she's really pissed. And she's like, Simon and Mara went to that new coffee shop. They didn't want breakfast. They haven't been here all day. And Zach thinks it's really weird because normally his dad's, like, very overprotective and is always – he's the reason that they have those watches so that he can contact them whenever he wants and there's GPS chips in them. And, like, the whole day goes by and the grown-ups never come back and um, eventually they – are captured by it turns out Mara was secretly a bad guy and she was working with one of the people who broke in earlier and she never called the cops because she was working with those people and they reveal that their plan is that they believe in hollow earth and so did the twins father Malcolm and that's why he and their mother fought was because he was like, oh, well, we have these kids who have both powers. They can help us get to Hollow Earth. And their mother was like, are you fucking kidding me? So she bound him in a painting 
And they want to use the twins, Mara and the other bad guy, to get him out of the painting, essentially, so that they can then use the twins together to find Hollow Earth. And there's a lot of, like, fight scenes and people sneaking out and trying to help each other and people getting hurt and, you know, monsters that are drawn into life who chase the kids everywhere and, you know, who almost kill them. And and also Matt can see the future, but it's not really mentioned that much. Well, because he can only see the future because he drew himself into that bird. The bird can see the future? <laughs> Yes, yes, that was he drew his so eyes point, into a magical bird. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> at one point, he, in order to find, when they think that Vaughn, the good guy who they thought was a bad guy, when they're chasing him, at one point they can't keep up with him, so they come up with this plan. Matt comes up with this plan to draw a mythical bird, and he gives the bird his own eyes, so that as the bird is flying, he can see what the bird sees, and. The bird is a mythical bird that can see the future. So oh my god! Form. <laughs> he gets a flash of the future at one point. Oh my god, I missed that. Oh my god, okay. <laughs> I mean, I knew about the bird in the eyes, but I didn't realize it was the bird. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't realize it was the bird that could see the future. When we say this book was confusing, it's not without reason. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. So. Great. Everyone, you know, gets saved. All the kids are okay. Simon's okay. Mara is the the main bad guy. Tannen, I think his name was, is killed. Tannen, by the way, talked like Gambit and it made me mad. Mara's like locked up and, you know, life kind of returns to normal, except that now they know like what is what has happened to their father and and also their uh, mom's still missing their mom's still missing and they're not sure why and their grandfather's still in a coma yeah but they talk to him in a painting yes and it kind of ends like it's very clearly you know part of a multi-part series and it ends with lots of dangling strings to be picked up in the next book which i don't even know if the next book exists yeah the whole trilogy's out already oh okay you, we could find out all the secrets if we gave a fuck. Yeah. I might and actually that's... read, like, the Wikipedia summaries of the next two books, to be honest. <laughs> so that's pretty much it. Like, we skipped a lot of stuff because... There's a, a lot, lot of, like... of just, like, details about, like, the minutes of the council meetings and, like, fucking... I don't care. And there's a lot and of, like, things, like, how long it took little... on the ferry. And... And how many jellyfish they saw. And there's and a lot sitting of... sitting on the bus. And there's a lot of things that interlock with each other that kind of like, oh, the monk things are part of a history lesson that um, Reynard is giving the kids. And because of the monk chapters and the history lesson, that's why they decide to do the reenactments for the tourists to make Mm. money. And because of that, they have this little hideaway in the cave. And because the hideaway is there, when Vaughn shows up to take care of them, secretly he can hide out in the cave and nobody knows because they're the only ones who know that it exists and so like it's a lot of like little scenes that don't necessarily aren't necessarily like big and important on their own but kind of build up to create reasons why other things can happen but you know obviously it's it's almost a 400 page book if we were to describe every single one of those little scenes we would be here for much longer than we're already here which at this point is probably about 6 or 7 hours yes. <laughs> uh, oh also that's where they get the mythical creatures from is the monk stuff 
Yeah. Yes, they were drawn in another cave, and the kids animate a series of them to yeah. basically help them get free and defeat a demon from the painting. Yeah. Oh, which also, I do want to briefly talk, one of the creatures is a periton, and I was like, I never heard of that, did they make that up? And I googled it, and it was created by Jorge Luis Borges in his book of imaginary beings, and I thought it was cool. It was a cool animal, but they didn't make it up. They stole <laughs> Cooler it. than this book deserves, let's be real. Yeah, so maybe look that up. But yeah, so that, I mean... Like, I'm not kidding you. I read this book probably 1.5 times because I read it once and then I went back and like skimmed things and I clearly still don't understand all of it. It's just like very convoluted, a lot of unnecessary detail and let's do some dramatic readings of it. Sounds good. All right. And we're actually breaking from our normal dramatic reading form because there's just too many characters in this. We couldn't find any scenes to break down that we could easily read um, with people doing different parts like we normally do. So each of us is just going to read one selection straight through. And I'm going to start off with something from toward the beginning that sort of sets up their animare powers. The twins had not been in a taxi in ages. They always traveled on the tube with their mom. But as soon as the security guard had hustled them from the National Gallery and out onto Trafalgar Square, Sandy hurried them into a taxi. Giving the driver their address, she settled herself in one of the flip-down seats facing the twins. She was so angry with them, she was almost speechless. Seatbelts fastened. Right now. Why are you so mad? asked Matt. We didn't do anything wrong. You know the rules. You know that what you did was dangerous. Your rules, not ours, Matt shouted back. We're sorry, Mom. We didn't mean to make you angry, Em interjected before the two of them started fighting for real. Matt and their mom seemed to be doing more and more of that lately, ever since their dad had missed another of their birthdays without a call or an email. With every passing year, Matt was becoming more and more convinced that their mom had driven their dad away. Em could hardly remember what their dad looked like. She wasn't sure she missed him at all. Really, Mom, continued Em, we're not stupid. But we know, we know we're not supposed to draw in public. But we were so hot. We won't do it again. Promise. Sandy sighed. Sometimes her terror made her lose control. She patted Em's leg. I know you're not stupid. Far from it. She tried to ruffle Matt's hair. He pulled away and slouched against the seat. It's just that you're getting older and things are becoming complicated. We were hot and wanted to go swimming, Matt snapped. And you promised no more meetings. Two days in a row you've dragged us to that stupid gallery. Sandy leaned forward, fear tightening the knot already in her stomach. Are you saying you knew you were putting yourselves into the painting? She turned to M. Please tell me you've never done that before. Don't say a word, M. That's in italics, the universal sign of telepathy. M hesitated as Matt's words echoed in her head. We didn't know we could do that until it happened with a painting yesterday, she said at last. The color drained from Sandy's face. Things were worse than she had thought. Much worse. What painting? telepathically 
Be quiet, M. A painting of Roman ruins. It was easy to copy. Seeing the sudden panic in her mom's eyes, M blurted, No one saw us. Honest. We were careful, Mom. I promise we were. So, as described, what does the mom know? What are they allowed to do? We don't know. Some stuff. What are the rules? How many are there? At least four. But they don't know. I don't think we ever actually get all of them. Maybe you gotta read the whole trilogy. At one point, like, they very briefly talk about the other two, but I think it's only once, and the the first one and the fourth one are repeated over and over again. So I'm going to read a portion from the Two Monks Invent Animare story, (laughs) just so you can get a sense of the kind of quote-unquote history that's been put in here, both of monks in the medieval era and of this particular backstory. The monks had built the scriptorium at the top of the North Tower decades earlier to protect the illuminated manuscripts from the ravages of fire and the destruction of robbers. When the old monk had first shown the room to Solon, the boy had been unable to stay for more than a few minutes at a time. His senses so overwhelmed by the power of the images captured in the scrolls and manuscripts. Solon had felt as if his head was going to burst. It was on that day four years ago that the old monk knew conclusively that Solon was a very special apprentice with imaginative powers of his own, and someone the old monk could trust with the monastery's secrets. And so he had. The most important secret Solon had learned was that a few of the monks could make their art come alive, a magical power that they mostly kept to themselves, using it to make their manuscripts more beautiful than those of any other scribes in Europe. Many of the kings and queens and scholars who owned a manuscript illuminated by the monks of Eramina felt as if they were transported to another world when they read. The monks called themselves Animare, which Solon knew meant gives life to from the Latin he was learning. Solon was always a little stunned when he first opened the scriptorium's door. Although the old monk had taught Solon how to concentrate, how to use his mind to quiet the explosion of sounds and images in his head, Solon couldn't help letting his imagination loose whenever he was near the books. When fetching a scroll, sometimes Solon would stand in the middle of the room, allowing the drumming inside his mind to rise to such a crescendo that when he closed his eyes he could see the images from the manuscripts as if they were all flashing in front of him like the flip books he and the old monk made to entertain the village children. So, yeah. I don't think they made flip books in the medieval era because... They didn't really have paper. They had parchment, which was made from animal skin and incredibly expensive. Also, this is not related. Did we ever actually say what happens when you're bound? I don't think we did. Okay, so it turns out what happens when you're bound is that you are, your soul and artistic soul are literally bound into one of your paintings. Um, So your body just is kind of vegetative for some people. Some people go crazy. Um, But essentially, like, your imagination and personality and everything are taken out of you and trapped in a painting. And that that reminded me, because one of the monk books, is that, or, no, it's animated? What the fuck? Something. Something special about the monk book along those lines. The, I think the problem with the monk book is that the monk who's doing the illuminations is an animare, and if he doesn't concentrate, the drawings will come to life. Like, he'll slip into his animare 
I, illustrating. I mean, in the monk times, that's the problem. But the monk page that they have now is somebody bound in that. There's oh, they don't. They don't know. That's that's kind of what how the the book ends is. They have this page from the manuscript, and there's something weird about it, but they're not sure what it is yet. Okay, so maybe that. Anyway, monks inventing Animare <laughs> is that. All right. Um, I'm going to read a little section now, which actually talks about binding. <laughs> oh, sorry to cut you off. I forgot we were doing that one, but I just thought yeah. about with the monk stuff. Well, tell us more. Tell us more about binding. Yeah. Um, so after the kids get in trouble for doing that, like, reenactment pretend hologram thing, um, to sort of explain to them why it's important to not do that, uh, their grandfather takes them down to this, like, special room in the house and before they can get very far into it, M freaks out and passes out. And then when she's resting in bed, he and their mother and everyone are gathered around and they kind of explain that this room exists and it's full of paintings that people have been bound into. And that's where I'll start. That room is one of five vaults hidden all over the world, containing art created by Animare, who, at the height of their imaginative powers, either refused to contain their imaginations or lost control of their power. After the council voted on their binding, their imaginations were de-animated by their guardian and another powerful Animare, reduced to radiant energy and bound in a work of their own art. M pulled herself up against her pillows. I don't understand. These Animari died? In some cases, the binding of their imagination resulted in the artist's death, said Reynard in a low voice. To be bound, to lose their imaginative powers, reduced other artists to madness or worse. Sometimes it simply left them empty, a shell of a human being. Oh man, I saw Van Gogh's painting Starry Night down there, Matt gasped. So was Van Gogh an Animari then? M asked thrilled by the connection to such a famous artist. Reynard sighed, resigned to all he would have to tell them. The time had come, and he didn't like what lay ahead one bit. When Matt had walked into the vault, the room had astonished him, but not overwhelmed him the way it had overwhelmed his sister. The room was filled with paintings, he explained to M enthusiastically. Each one was glowing like it had a halo of light coming from it. He jumped off the bed again, as if pacing would help him find the words more easily. Em, when I looked into that picture, Starry Night, it felt like, well, I don't even know what I felt. Sandy stepped in. You felt bliss, Matt. Euphoria, joy. Van Gogh's painting transported you beyond reality for a fleeting moment. Confused, Em looked at her mom. But how come it's down there? We've seen Starry Night in the museum. It's down in the vault because Van Gogh's imagination is bound within it, Reynard explained. But it's a copy. You see, when the binding decision is made, the Council of Guardians can either bind the artist's imagination or the artist's entire being, depending on the circumstances. If an artist is bound, he or she can choose which painting to be bound in. The Starry Night in the Vault is not identical to the original, but it's close, and Vincent himself painted it. He paused for a beat. Poor Vincent was an unusually sad case. He went mad before his imagination was bound. His own mind was never able to come to terms with his animari powers. Sadly, Europe in the 19th century didn't appreciate him much either. 
which is some bullshit. So I still don't understand, but I don't what? need to. I don't okay. need to. <laughs> no, okay. So if you're bound, do you, do you, okay, you can become a vegetable. Is there any way that you could be bound and still, like, live normally? Like, why wouldn't they just no. kill you? I think. Oh, because if like you're, wait, if you're bound, that. you can get unbound, though? Because that's what they're going to do to Malcolm, maybe? Well, so, I think Malcolm is inside a painting, so that's different. Oh, he's not bound? I thought he was bound. He, he is bound, but he's also a guardian, so it's slightly different. But I, I think it's kind of like a a fate worse than death sort of thing. Like, you oh, fucked up bad. Oh. But it doesn't seem like it was always a punishment. They didn't... Okay. I don't care for this. Like... <laughs> <laughs> It's not explained well. Okay. Well, let's play some Would You Rather. Because okay. I could talk about this for three more hours and not understand <laughs> it. So we better just move on. <laughs> okay. Would you rather be John Barrowman's Animari or be his guardian? So either way, it would be garbage because I'd be psychically connected to Barrowman. <laughs> but I think thinking about it for a while I would rather be his guardian because then I could trick another Animari into helping me bind him into a painting so that <laughs> he would go away forever and I wouldn't have to deal with him um I'd rather be his Animari because I think that would be cool to make my drawings come to life although I would probably use it irresponsibly and get bound as punishment but it would be cool while it lasted and I wouldn't I don't know I think I wouldn't mind being psychically connected to Barrowman that much I think I'd have to go with being his guardian because as terrible as that would be, I'd much rather be able to influence his emotions than have him be able to influence mine. Oh, yeah, I forgot he could do that. No, I'm sticking with my choice. That's fair. Well, They're pretty cool powers. We'll learn to, I'll learn to live with them. All right. Would you rather... Oh, God. I don't... Did we even explain this one? A little bit. Say the thing and then I'll explain okay. it. Would you rather babysit the changeling child or be the teacher of Theo Boone, kid lawyer? Okay, so the changeling child, if you remember when we were talking about the guy at the museum who was trapped in his office with, like, the painting that he was horrified someone had taken out, that he would never have requested. No one would ever have requested that painting. The changeling child is a creature in that painting. It's like this little demon thing. And that's the thing that ultimately kills the guy in the museum. And that painting is used as a weapon against everyone else. Like, yeah, when that's the what kids M, are... M keeps seeing that thing. And everybody thinks she's making it happen. And she's like, no, it's real. And it's because Mara has had the painting there the whole time and has, like, essentially sicked the the changeling child creature on her to haunt her dreams and you know to attack the kids and stuff and eventually they defeat it with another jellyfish um and then they burn it but wait so was somebody bound in that painting or why was that painting that um i think that that painting was them kind of manip like how they the kids could go into the other painting it was them manipulating a painting that already existed but it seemed like that painting was always like that like and that's why it was always in storage and nobody would ever show it in their museum i think it's something inherent to that painting yeah i think they said something about it but i honestly don't remember 
fucking book. Also, I'm assuming, is that a real painting? Because, like, all the other ones they talked about were real paintings. It's inspired by a section of another painting. I think this got mentioned in the afterward. Okay. Anyway, so the changeling child shows up throughout the book in, like, you know, it harasses them, and it's creepy and horrible. And Theo Boone, kid lawyer. (laughs) If I had the Kindle version, I would search and I would find out, because I know that at one point they explain why they're using that painting, but I have a book version, and I'm Okay, I do have it. I'll search for it. Because it was fucking... Ugh. This book was so confusing. Like, the more I think about it, the less I understand it. It was linked to grisly deaths. Okay. Well, no, this just says, Witch with Changing Child was said to be cursed and locked in storage, never to be splayed again. I'm... I found the chapter at the end where they have it. Okay. He... It looks like the Tannen guy made the painting. Or at least it was his painting somehow. So was it, like, a copy, then, of the... But it seems Probably. like it had this, like, years-long oh, yeah, yeah. history. I, I bet it was a copy. Because, by the way, we forgot to mention that their mom is in a gang of art forgers. Yeah. <laughs> BTW. <laughs> Wait, okay, sorry, so Tannen made the painting? Uh, when she, like, floods the room... He's explaining how, like, he stole the painting from the museum and brought it to Mara to use against them. And when the room floods, he starts freaking out because it's getting messed up. But I don't know. I would need to read reread a lot more of these sections than I really feel like doing right now. Ugh. Okay. Well, so basically, would you rather be charged with the care of a horrible monster creature or uh, the changing child? <laughs> Ah, sick burn on Theo Boone. <laughs> High-fiving myself. <laughs> um, I think I'd, I, I think I'd have to say, see, if I was babysitting the changeling child, if, if it was, if the changeling child was my child, if I was the witch, I would definitely go with that babysitting mm, I don't know I might have to go with be the teacher of Theo Boone because as I explained during that episode like it sounds like that little fucking nerd just wants to (laughs) teach the class himself so I could just put my feet up and read all period I think okay I am very afraid of the changing child because it's very vicious and it will murder you but if I could babysit, like, if it were the kind of babysitting where it comes over to my house, I think it would be okay because I think Duarte could defeat the changing child and oh. I would feel safe. So I would pick that. And we know you're already used to taking care of things with very sharp teeth. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> Put in my oven mitts, I'll be fine. Yeah, I think I'd go with babysit the changing child because... First of all, it sounds like more of a one-time thing. You can give it back. And, you know, you lock it in a very small playpen and throw it some raw meat, and you're probably okay. And if I guess if it gets out of hand, you could always set its painting on fire. That's also true. If you have it. You might not get paid, but who cares? Yeah, if it's, you know, we'll figure it out. All right, last up. Would you rather... Uh, read another book by Rob Lowe, or for Naomi, a book by Rob Lowe, or another book by John Barrowman and Carol Barrowman. I'm, I'm like, legitimately torn, because as many problems as we've highlighted in this book during the podcast episode, like, it, it did grip me. I did read it very quickly. I was 
you know, it, it excited to figure out what happened. It, it drew me in to the world. And I am kind of curious as to how all of the strands would be tied up in later books. But at the same time, I was very charmed by the kind of like celebrity gossip dinner party anecdotes of Rob Lowe's book. Hmm. I know, and I'm torn too, because obviously Rob Lowe is my nemesis, but I do, I did love the celebrity gossip. But like you said, during the time I was reading this, I was like, yeah, this is pretty fun. I kind of want to know. And it really wasn't until he started talking about it. I was like, wait, I don't understand any of this. So I'm concerned about what my comprehension levels would be like of book two. So I think I'm going to choose, theoretically, to read Rob Lowe's second book, which is called Love Life. And then, but I'm also going to read the Wikipedia summaries of the next two Hollow Earth books because I kind of do want to know what happened. I think I'm going to read the next Hollow Earth books and then watch The West Wing. Okay, cool. And I'm going to read a book by Rob Lowe because he's not my nemesis and I'm definitely into Hollywood gossip. And I didn't read that one yet, so works for me. All right, let's move on then to our reader's advisory where we'll suggest things to read instead of or in addition to Hollow Earth by John and Carol Barrowman. I'm going to start. I want to jump in and say Shadow Shaper by Daniel Older is like basically the same concept where you can paint paintings to life and there's a mysterious society about it, but it's way cooler and way better and you should read Shadow Shaper. Um, I've got a bunch of them. I'm just going to shout out, I guess, a couple a lot of the things in this book, a lot something about the the way the book was written tonally kind of somehow reminded me of the Skullduggery Pleasant books by Derek Landy. I don't know why the Skullduggery Pleasant books are much better written, the stories are much better, the characters are much better, and the text is much funnier. But I kept thinking about them while I was reading this. I mean, they're both British and kind of like, it's kind of like children involved with secret British society. Yeah. Like, I think, I mean, like, obviously, yeah, Skullduggery Pleasant, there's a lot of, like, magic and a girl being inducted into a secret magical society via a mentor. So there were a lot of, like, similarities that way, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see it. And I guess my big one is Oversea Under Stone by Susan Cooper, which is the first book in the Dark is Rising series. This one is also about siblings in a small, remote seaside town uh, dealing with mysteries and magical things beyond their comprehension. Although it's Cornwall rather than Scotland, and you have three siblings rather than two. But it's really engaging, really well written, and the series as a whole is fantastic. It brings in Arthurian mythology and more magical powers, and they're just great. Uh, another one that I would recommend would be the Fablehaven series by Brandon Mull, uh, which is, a, again, a very similar concept with two kids who are visiting their grandfather and they find out that there's a whole other magical world that they didn't know about. Um, and this, uh, a main similarity for this one is that the thing that they didn't know about is a place that all of the magical creatures in the world live, much like the fabled Hollow Earth in this series. It's a little bit better though there's a bunch of books i think i only read like the first two or three but i i think it's even still going on but that's a good one and the crestomancy series by diana Wynne jones uh they're so good is also a good read alike it's funnier it's magic 
first book, Charmed Life, also involves a sibling relationship, although slightly more contentious than the one in this book. But yeah, I definitely <laughs> recommend those two. I'd recommend the video game series Scribblenauts, where you draw things to life and use them to solve riddles. And I think if we want to talk about drawings where you can jump into them, we have to mention both Harold and the Purple Crayon by mm-hmm. Crockett Johnson, which is a classic picture book about a kid with, obviously, a purple crayon mm-hmm. who draws himself a whole world to play in, and Mary Poppins by P.L. Travers. So if you've seen the Disney movie of the same name, there is a whole chapter where she and her friend Bert jump into a chalk painting, and it's pretty great. And the book as a whole is also pretty great, even if you didn't like the movie. Fantastic. All right, well, we'll have these and a bunch more because middle grade YA fantasy is kind of our jam over here. So we'll have a lot of suggestions up on the Reader's Advisory tab for this episode on our website, worstbestsellers.com. And now we will move on to our candy pairing, where we'll suggest a candy to go along with this book. My candy for this book was candy-coated chocolate gems, which are generic M&Ms. And, uh, you know, they're not going to win any candy awards or be anyone's favorite, but they're not, like, super bad, and they'll hit the spot in a pinch. Mine is a sherbet lemon. It sounds cool and fancy, and then you find out it's just a British lemon drop. And mine is saltwater taffy because you think it's going to be a delightful seaside treat and it tastes okay, but then it kind of cements your teeth together and you end up regretting the whole experience. Fair enough. And now we'll play our favorite game, The Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book, and Naomi will choose which would most enhance this book. Or choose paper, which is to leave the book as is. All right. If Dwayne the Rock Johnson were in this book, uh, he would be hired as security for the Abbey slash school thing slash Reynard's general estate um, after Sandy and the kids flee there because, wow, probably if dangerous people want to destroy your grandkids' souls, they should, and they all know exactly where you're hiding, you should get some additional protection for them, maybe, which isn't really addressed in the book at all. Uh, yeah, the bad guys know exactly where Sandy and the kids have run off to. They just, you know, whatever. So things continue as normal in the book right up until the night that Mara attacks Reynard and pretends to be attacked herself. The Rock is there as security, and he easily subdues her before she can draw anything to attack him and, you know, assault Reynard. And when everyone comes home at the end of the uh, at the end of the night and returns to the Abbey, they make her reveal the truth about her partnership with Tannen and the Council and her quest to find Matt and Em's dad. And everyone is shocked and dismayed, but not that shocked and dismayed because she's been <laughs> pretty shady since the start. No one gets injured or put into a coma, and they're all free to begin the continued quest to figure all this shit out, which is clearly going to propel future books. All right. Well, if Wolverine were in this book, um, he'd be crashing in one of the sadness caves on the island that the kids like to hang out in. And, you know, he, he sees their couch and stuff, and eventually he finds out what's going on. And he agrees to help them fight off the demon changeling child and the other shady people in exchange for them drawing him a case of whiskey. The book, it's pretty much the same, except for they don't get hurt as bad and Wolverine gets some whiskey. As entertaining as the idea of the kids drawing a crate of whiskey is, (laughs) 
I think I have to go with The Rock because Kate makes an excellent point that they really did need some better security than the glass panels they have hanging in the woods, which is a whole other thing that got mentioned that we didn't talk about. Yeah. Also, it didn't occur to me until just now, if Simon could sense Mara's emotions, why didn't he know she was shady? Maybe she was shady. Like, she says at some point, like, for years I've been hiding my emotions, crafting my emotions into whatever for you, so you wouldn't blah blah whatever. Which sounds like it's basically pokes a whole hole in their big guardian thing, but, you know. Mm, Okay. Let's move on to the moral of the story. I'll just, mine is simply that art is dangerous. My moral of the story is, if your children might have dangerous magical powers that their father wants to use that to end the world, probably you should warn them about that at some point. And mine is, don't disable the tracking on your smartphones if you're going to go break the rules and get in trouble, because you might crash your entire house's uh, internet system. Another thing that happened that we didn't talk about. <laughs> All right, good morals, everyone. We will now move on to Duarte's corner, where my cat Duarte will explain explain his feelings about the book. Okay, Duarte, I I get it. You want to fight the changing child, but I was just kidding. Like it's not it's not real. I can't bring and. It. You know, I I also think that probably they should have drawn more cats, but, you know, this was already a really long and complicated book. Maybe we can assume that they drew some cats, you know, off page. Maybe like a a mythical cat. Yes. And we can definitely agree with you that the jellyfish were gross and that they would probably be very unpleasant to get your claws into. Oof, so unpleasant. All right. Well, as always, well said, Duarte. Thank you for joining us. And now, do any humans have any closing thoughts about this book? Eh, whatever. (laughs) Is basically my opinion on this book. Good job, Carol. (laughs) I think, looking back, using a pointillist masterpiece for this might have actually been a stroke of genius, because it looked okay from a distance, like, when I read the whole thing and finished it, I was like, that wasn't as bad as I thought, but if you get up close and look at all the component parts... You realize that it doesn't make sense. You're so right. <laughs> You're so right. It doesn't. I thought I liked this book, and now I realize I don't. It doesn't make any sense. I have a master's degree. <laughs> oh, my God, this book. Okay. That's a good closing thought. Um, yeah. So, Naomi, thank you so much for joining us and reading this thing that we read. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Um, you can find us as a podcast online. We're on Facebook at The Worst Bestsellers. We're on Twitter at Worst Bestseller with no S. You can follow me personally on Twitter at 14 Across. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Renata Snacks. And you can follow me on Twitter at Anachronistique. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you do, please rate and review us. Um, When you rate and review us, it kind of pops us up in the iTunes charts and makes us more visible so more people can find us. And if you don't rate and review us, we're going to have to send the changeling child after you. (laughs) And we didn't really get into like the details, but it's pretty gross and also pretty annoying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Uh, we also have a Goodreads group you can join. It's on there as we're called the Worst Bestsellers, or there's a link from our website, which, as mentioned, is worstbestsellers.com. Also, a casual reminder that if you are happen to be shopping on Amazon, please start from our website. If you click any referral link and buy anything, regardless of if it's, you know, Hollow Earth or something that you actually do want to read, such as the Hamilton book that's coming out next month, uh, yes. we'll, get, we'll get a little kickback from that. And we really appreciate it. Wow. Was this the first episode in a long time without an overt Hamilton reference? There was one a few weeks back where we didn't. But hey, Hamilton, we like it still. (laughs) And I bet we'll be talking about it a fair amount uh, in two weeks when we come back with Killing Lincoln by Bill O'Reilly. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So until then, thank you guys for listening. Bye. Bye. Sorry, I'm sorry for treating you like a fake theater nerd girl.